Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Sports Tourism Podcast. I'm Joel Lamb with the Huntsville, Madison County Convention and Visitors Bureau, and I'm joined for the first time this year. It's the big show. We got everybody back. Ben Snyder in Grand Junction, Colorado. Hi, guys. Glad to be back in the new year. New year, new me. And then Cherie Gwynn in Spokane. Howdy. Great to be back here in 2024, starting off a new adventure here in Spokane. And today's guest is John Schmieder from the Huddle Up Group. John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me back. I, I'm I'm honored to be a, a two-time attendee to this big show. So you are our first two-time two-time guest. So uh, you know, big props to you for uh, making the cut list and, and getting invited back. Um, and so, as we kind of today's just going to be kind of a just a general conversation. We'll see where it takes us but um coming out of 23 we've seen the rebound now out of covid um but now we're starting to see some you're seeing a lot of destinations who have made investments start trying to okay what's that next investment what's that next thing that um get into and obviously number one is pickleball we all know that that everybody's if you're not investing in pickleball, then your then your community is <laughs> somehow stuck in 2018. Um, but what are some of the things you're seeing now as destinations have made that initial first couple of investments? What's that next like investment you're seeing a lot of destinations start looking at? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and USA Pickleball based here in Phoenix, where I sit. Um They've got a new CEO, comes from the from the hockey and football worlds, which is kind of interesting. Uh, great guy. He'll, he'll do really well for them. Um, you know, what we're seeing out of the pandemic, especially, I, I'd like to say that that's all over, but it's kind of lingering. But things like pickleball and those types of investments, a lot of the silent sports is, is at least what we call them. Um, canoe, kayak, water sports, archery, a lot of the things that were the only things we kind of could do during the pandemic. You know, I'm, as, as you know, Joel, I grew up a competitive golfer. Um, golf did really well. Uh, and that has its own challenges now. The the public courses are getting squeezed pretty hard by the high-end daily feast type facilities. Uh, but on a, on a facility standpoint, the destinations we work with that we serve in, in strategic planning and feasibility studies and things that Huddle Up Group does, man, the, the CVBs and the sports commissions are so much more involved in in facility development than they ever have been. And, and I think that's great. I think having a seat at that table, which I think largely was strengthened by the pandemic, like, you know, cause us old timers have been around this too long. We used to bang our fists on the table and our head against the wall saying, Hey, we need a seat at the economic development table. And we could oftentimes not ever get one. And since sports tourism drove the, the tourism bus for all those years during the pandemic and, and to today, uh, really saved the, the industry's bacon. Now, in almost every destination we go to, the tourism entity, whatever it is, uh, has a seat at that table and has a voice, which is awesome. We think it's super cool. And I think we talked about last time, too, we've seen a lot of ascensions to those CEO seats in the tourism world for by people that really came through the sports market, which which is another great thing for us to have a lot more 
uh, a lot more folks that come from all of our, you know, the folks on this call, our, our collective background are now running tourism. You know, you got Dave Harrell in the Quad Cities, people like that. Yep. It's awesome to have people that are from our universe sitting in those chairs that can make those types of de decisions on investment, right? And those types of things. So, uh, but on a f straight facility standpoint, like, like parks and rec level stuff, what we're seeing a lot is municipalities that that got that golf crunch to the to the muni courses let's get those golf courses repurposed to something that's a higher better use and use that real estate for soccer complexes or something else and get that off our balance sheet pools are too expensive to build and operate these days they can't recover enough revenue from local user groups to keep make those viable so a lot of the municipalities are closing pools and repurposing those and then you mentioned the, the conversion of tennis to pickleball it's happening everywhere we go where they're taking those old kind of tennis courts that probably need an investment and just changing them over and putting two pickleball courts on each one. Cause there's, it's a higher use given the the grow, especially the recreational pickleball, let alone the tournament people. Mm -hmm. That's a, I mean, great stuff, John. And I think, I mean, we're been taking advantage of that, of having that seat at the table and facility. And you obviously are familiar with the grand junction area. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity here. We just got to figure out what is the, the next step, but yeah, I, I agree. We're starting to get heard a little bit more, which makes me feel good. And, allows us to give some insight into where we think we can take things. Um, talk, talk a little bit about the sports. So you mentioned obviously a couple of them really excelled during COVID. I know given us being outdoor recreation, like cycling was huge. And, and I know during the peak of COVID, you couldn't find a bike. You couldn't find certain outdoor sports. In my opinion, those have since kind of tapered off. So I'm curious what you've seen. Again, we're really on the outdoor rec side, um, just mountain trails, all that stuff. But then also Lee Nolan with that question, looking at 2028 Olympics, flag football being in Olympics, huge thing for the sport. Um, obviously, their global reach has been expanding a little bit more each year with now games in Germany and, and obviously the UK and Mexico and US. Um, and you even got Taylor Swift in the mix. I mean, like I, football's taken off. Let's, let's, let's be honest. Where's that going? Yeah, it's interesting. Somebody in Shreveport asked a similar question yesterday at a presentation we made there. And it was, it was okay, pickleball is hockey sticking and everybody's playing, right? So what's next? And honestly, uh, even though pickleball is not an example of this because it's not on the Olympic program or the Pan American program, but the ones that you mentioned that, that are, they usually see a spike, mm -hmm. right? You can look at USA BMX when, they, when it announced that they were going to be on the London program or the Beijing program way back when, their, their membership skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. and, and because kids, kids see those sports on NBC and they think it's cool and they want to try it, right? So rugby sevens had a bounce. I'm, I'm sure if we went and surveyed, you know, the competitive climbing universe has probably increased since the last games, you know, and those other ones, surfing, skateboarding, freestyle BMX has grown because it was on the Olympic program last time. So I think uh, you're right, Ben, like all the ones that are on the program for next year in Paris and all the ones that are on the LA program, I'm, I'm going to watch those pretty closely because mm -hmm. I think the next pickleball, so to speak, is going to come out of one of those. Right. Sure. And, and and we when we consult these destinations that we work with, we say, hey, let's let's be let's befriend the skateboarding group. Yeah. Right. Because they're new. They need help and resources to put on not just their trials, but various events that are going to now come out of the fact that they, that they are, you know, the organization's brand new. Right. So if we if we lock arms with them now, we can grow with them and their events as they grow, too. Right. So um, so, you know, breakdancing, another example, like who knows where that's going to go. Right. But, but let's get to know those. Oh, we know where that's going, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Sharice, Sharice trying to get into the breakdancing. She's trying to compete. 
<laughs> I almost have a flat head. It's good. At the podium, you can do that, right? There you go. Right. The track, so, so, you know, but then, and again, just like Cherie, I mean, you guys were involved in revamping your BMX track years ago. You guys were heavily involved in developing the podium. Like that's the kind of thing that we're seeing a lot more of that I'm super jazzed about. Um, just more, again, more intentional thought on the end users and, and, the, and the, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, the, the communities we work with that are the that are the best at that kind of envisioning and that kind of getting the political will to get these things to happen are the ones that don't lose sight of the community user groups, right? The ones that that lock arms with, yes, we're all in, in sports tourism and events, right? All four of us. But at the end of the day, if we do something cool like the podium in Spokane and our kids get a better place to play too, right? That, that, that's got a lot of political will. And I talked to a, um, a city council person in Illinois earlier today. And he said, hey, now you're speaking my language. If I can go to my constituents and say that if we revamp this park as a project we're doing, if we revamp this so our local Pop Warner teams and, and our baseball leagues get a better place to play, I can get behind a tourism driving asset and investing in that, right? But I'm not going to do it on tourism on its own. And, and we're seeing that all over the country. The best ones are really, we always talk about, you know, political will aligning economic development, tourism, and local user groups. They're, they're usually pretty successful getting, getting to the finish line, what they want to do. Yeah, we just received approval today for a progressive design to build a cross-country course. So dipping our toes into your market there, Joel. So better watch out. Let's go. Come, you know what's really dance. funny? So, you know, this you guys know all about the sports tourism index, all the logos behind me and all that stuff. But when we look at the events, we have 1,700 events on the Scout platform now. When we look at the events and what types of facilities they're asking for, not just in field number of fields and amenities and all that stuff. But when we look at event sporting event types and the facilities that are in there, we have over 7,000 venues in the index now. 400 destinations have gone through the pain like you guys have of putting all your information in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and thank you for that. It's, but it's pretty cool. We, Ghostbusters, when we cross the streams and look at the data on both sides, the event owner side and the destination side, what's funny, Sheree, the two venues that we would consider underserved because there are so many events for that venue type, but not enough quality venues to host them, are indoor hydraulic tracks and dedicated cross-country courses. Hey, don't don't share a secret or anything. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's it, There's a reason that we're doing it. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. And, and kudos to the gang in Spokane because indoor we have one indoor track in the state of Alabama. And every weekend for the it started in mid-December. And it's going to go for another three weekends. Everybody in the states got to go to Hoover for indoor track. Everybody in the country looks at Crossplex as the example of how to do it right. Oh, oh yeah, we use examples right? from there. We just hosted our largest meet to date, and it was fourteen hundred athletes on the dot. High school, it's your bread and butter. It's Honestly, I mean, it's a huge undertaking. Anna on our team did a tremendous job seeding all of those like 300 entries for a 200 meter, you know, um, run. So it's incredible. But John, going kind of back to facilities, I'm curious what you're seeing because like we have escalating costs of our minimum wages, $16, and we're seeing this continuous increase in pricing. And at some point it gets to the point like that threshold of being able to underwrite and be able to bring in events is also an issue. I think that we're facing certainly. And 
like, are we seeing that across the board? Um, you know, Washington seems to be kind of on the forefront of, you know, high salaries or at least minimum wage, but it impacts, you know, security costs, your police, your venue costs. And it's getting to the point that we're like outpricing not only ourselves, but our clients. And it's like, how do you, you know, change that trajectory? That's that's a tough one. You know, we, we, we had a call earlier today with a bunch of NGB folks uh, and that, that came up. They're like, the small NGBs can't afford I know you just put on a huge badminton event, right? And I can tell you having served on their board for six or so years, putting on something like that with a two-person staff is like impossible, you know, <laughs> financially yeah. impossible. And so we always had to lean on, like at the time when Roy was at uh, Orange County, you know, visit Anaheim, we had to lean on Roy to pay a lot of our bills, yeah, you know, was... to have, have the arena and have the right, and in their case in California, not a very affordable place to do events, you know, but it was part of our gig, but we had to go to him over and over and over for additional facility re rental revenues and things like that just to make it work. But I feel for you guys, given where that the trajectory of that conversation is going, because the NGBs and, and the event owners you work with aren't going to be the ones that are going to be able to find that extra seat cushion money <laughs> to pay those bills. They're going to ask you guys to do it. Exactly. Uh, which which is unfortunate. The cool thing is, we had another call today uh, with a group that has a concept. It's called Try Habitat. And we've known them for years. And, and when COVID came, they kind of shut the idea down. But the concept, it kind of applies to what you're saying, because they're talking about, you know, closing streets for triathlons, marathons, oh, crit races, so things like that. A lot of you guys do in your destinations. The, the Try Habitat concept, which the, the guy has a patent for, for the concept, a utility patent, is to build a permanent endurance course. That, that wouldn't be subject to, to you having to go apply for permits and, and shut down streets and do all that stuff. So the venue design itself leads to dropping the cost down, right? And, and ha having permanent changeover stations that you don't have to go construct each time you bring a, uh, you know, an Ironman or whatever, and having permanent seating and the utilities are all there. And it's a really cool concept. And again, going back to like the repurposing of golf courses, that's exactly the type of venue that they want to put these types of facilities in this, this, this triathlon permanent kind of stadium, if you will, um, using like the, our golf course, you know, the TPC concept of using mm -hmm. a lot of grass seating around the course and making it uh, multi-use for cross country and cycling and yes, Ironman and those things. But I think some of your costs down the road, if we're going to be use that word intentional again, if we're going to be intentional about what we're investing in, maybe it's, it's a little bit different than like, Let's go build an eight court basketball box, right? And and like everybody else has, um, I will say too that. But the the data that I mentioned earlier about what you guys are doing, uh, and of course you didn't have access to that data when you started thinking about the podium, right? So um, and neither did neither did Danny and Virginia Beach when they built theirs, right? But the cool thing is you guys were right, and whether you guessed or not, you were right. And but the opposite side of that is I remember years ago, being one of the old guys. They people would always ask myself, Don Schumacher, whoever, saying, when is this facility boom going to end? And we always used to say, not in my lifetime, right? The data on the opposite side of the spectrum of what I mentioned earlier about cross countries and tracks and indoor hydraulic tracks or cross country courses, the opposite side of that is our data says that flat fields and diamond complexes are becoming saturated, that they're overbuilt. There aren't enough, you know, Cal Ripkins, who's a great partner of ours, there aren't enough of them enough of that programming to fill these complexes, right? And, and now they have so many choices, you know, so we, we caution, you know, the communities we work with on the facility side to say, hey, 
lean into the data. The data says, don't go build the same thing your neighbor has, you know, and because everybody, every, almost everybody already has the flat field complex or the diamond complex or some version of it, right? Let's go think about something else. Let's do what Macon did and build the biggest indoor pickleball complex in the country, right? Turn an old dilapidated mall because their mayor's brilliant. And they turn it into this awesome tourism driving thing. It's, it's really cool. You know, that's that's being a little more intentional and in, in thought about what we're going to do in the future. It'll change the trajectory of what Visit Making can do, right? That they have an asset that nobody else in the Southeast has, which is totally awesome. Oh, yeah. I know. That's, I, go ahead, Cherie. Oh, I was going to say, I know as we're looking to build our cross-country course, it's not just looking at cross-country, but cyclocross as well. So it's multi-use and kind of hits those shoulder dates. So talk about stop, like stop. being intentional <laughs> being intentional <Stop>. joel <laughs> oh boy. You know, we, see oh a need. Boy. we see a need and so obviously it fills shoulder nights in our region and uh obviously i just want to go head to head with joel on some business so the ne- next thing you're going to tell me is you're putting a disc golf course in the middle of it too <laughs> no they've tried to do that too we're like yeah there's other areas for that <laughs> we're, we're trying to recruit space force to to grand junction joel it's always- <laughs> <laughs> yeah i see i see how this is going to be let's it's everybody wants to pick on Huntsville we see what day. joel All does right. and we're going to raise it one <laughs> so your cross country course is going to solve two two things i know joel's a big golfer too like we don't like our golf courses being torn up for cross country races and you don't have the time and energy to go stake them out and you have to do a buyout, right? You have to pay the course, whatever they would have made on their mm-hmm. T-shirt. So you're, you're solving a cost issue, a setup issue, and also just purely not making the golfers mad, <laughs> right? Well, it's the you infrastructure know. too that we're putting in with it. You know, we'll have a permanent building and the ability, you know, the savings that we'll have on staff for setup and just the daily operations is going to be a huge cost savings for us and time saving. So I can tell you, exciting. if you haven't seen it, the one at Texas A&M is, is the best one I've seen. It's really good. Nice. The, they built it so the spectators, the, the start finish line's up top, and the, you could literally just stay there, and you can see the whole course from the top. It's really right. cool. So, so ours is more like the TPC concept. You, you have the start-finish line, the start line, and then the finish line are right next to each other. But now everybody starts and you walk across the course and then the kids come by. Then you walk across and then they come by again. So you've got, and, and as the father of a, an, an ex cross country athlete, it's the worst spectator sport ever if you don't have some intentionality built into that course. Like there are certain races where I was worried that my kid got lost in the woods or something because it's like it's hitting the time where he should be coming in. I'm like, okay, where is he? Did he take a wrong turn? You know, I haven't seen him in 30 minutes. Um, but then when uh coming to our races and the 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 fans are all uh parents and family are all like, Man, this is awesome. I get to see him a couple times on the course, I can watch him coming up, I can watch him going down. It's and, and that's the one thing um our when they design it. The other thing that is really cool about Arsh that for you guys, Sheree, we have a uh, handicap accessible track around the entire course. Is it paved? Because we've looked it's, at that because like Parasport's pretty predominant here with yep. uh, Parasport. And so I know that we've looked at that because um, I know like, I think we are one of, well, I think maybe California or Oregon um, for their state championships. I feel like we're one of the only states that includes para as state cross country. So I know that's pretty pivotal of how we move forward and 
um, expectations and how we execute that. It's it's paved, um, and so, but at no point on the course is it more than a three percent grade. So anybody that's in a wheelchair, whatever their handicap, they are able to use that. And then that we flipped that when we hosted uh, the junior college uh, national cha cross country championships this year. We also they have a half marathon competition. Well, the half marathon's on a Tuesday. Well, you're not closing roads on a Tuesday mm -hmm. in the middle of town. So we actually um, ran it around the cross country course and. <clears throat> we have a pathway underneath the street back to the soccer stadium. So that was the course was you ran around the soccer stadium, came back over, ran around the course, run back and forth. And we got the half marathon in. So it was, it was really good. That's one thing too. You mentioned para like that industry is growing and God lover Donna Callahan is, is singing loud from the treetops on how important that industry is. And in our, you know, are typically that's not even a consideration. A lot of the destinations we go to, but the ones that have invested in that are doing really well. And and the organizations like Move United and some of those, they're getting a lot more uh, advanced in in what to ask you all for, how to get into that kind of RFP game. And a lot of it from Donna and her. You know, we helped her launch her Labs event a couple of years ago. Her, uh, you know, it's a virtual meeting for the para sports industry. And some of those speakers are awesome. And, um, you know, we did an economic impact study uh, with a group out of San Diego for it on measuring the impact of, of all the championships that are out there in that space. It's not a small number. Like it, they, they deserve some attention. And uh, a lot of the destinations we work with are leaning into that. Like you guys are in Spokane for sure. And, and, uh, and in, obviously in Huntsville. So that's one area, one trend area we're seeing. What do you guys deal with? And like, and again, just coming from, Two week, two weeks in a row in, in Louisiana, both destinations we're working with, like access is a huge issue, like facility access, whether it's private, whether it's run by parks, you know, other than, other than buying your way up the food chain, what kind of things you guys do to like get them to, to give you the keys now and then when you need them? Go storm the gates. This is being recorded, right? I can't, I can't. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> the one thing though, the one thing we talk about at least is I've got to work multiple. I need to work and multiple. I need to work a year or more in advance to secure the facility. Mm -hmm. um, I, and, and behind me is our uh, arena. So when we did, we had uh, two neutral site basketball games this December, past December. Um, I was, battling with them or not necessarily battling, but we're negotiating on dates for 30 to 45 days because it's, Hey, I've got a concert. It's the opportunity cost that they've got away mm -hmm. versus what I'm bringing in. Um, and then when we go to our convention center space, it's, I, I've got to be, I've got to beat everybody else to the punch um, to get on the calendar. Or if there's an annual event, Hey, how can we, how can they go work some magic to move it around? But that, and I think going back a little bit, you know, if you're looking at the venues, the, especially the bigger events, you've got to, you're, you need to be thinking a year or two out anyway to make sure a, you've got the venue, but B that you can, that you know what you're doing when you're running it. We always talk about favored nation status, which is, is, so if you're talking mm -hmm. about like a college campus, 
we want to, we're not going to be intercollegiate athletics, but we also don't want to be seventh on the totem pole. Right. And so how do we get into that where we're maybe intercollegiate athletics goes first and then the sports commission is next and then rec and club and intramurals and all that other stuff. It's usually money, you know, about investing in their facilities and then putting an MOU in place and papering that up. So they can't forget that, Hey, you helped them buy a new scoreboard. <laughs> right. Which oh, absolutely. over time, you know, and we were in one destination earlier this year or at the end of last year, we finished a project and the parks director is like, oh, yeah, well, we, we give them dates when we when we have a chance. I go that new scoreboard up there. They bought you that scoreboard. Like, doesn't that get him any consideration on future dates? He's, he, he like kind of forgot that the CVB gave him a couple million bucks for a new scoreboard you know, and a timing system in their pool and all that. I'm like, so I tell the destinations, I'm like, if you make any investment, put the use thing on paper and make sure that you have it on hand at all times when you're asking for that favored nation status to remind them who invested in the facility, you know, but that's the biggest thing we see is, is sometimes the, especially if it's parks, it's, it's not always parks fault, but a lot of times they're like, Hey, we were paid for by the community for the community the tourism thing is going to have to wait, you know, which is kind of a challenge sometimes. I, I do love being the small community where we have direct access to the decision makers that make that process easier, where, like you said, you got to play that game, make sure that the leadership's on board can make your life significantly easier. So I'd say that's one of the, the pros of being a small town. I know exactly who I need to go to and have direct access. Mm -hmm. When I was in Denver, I remember the parks director, you mentioned a year out, Joel, the parks director used to, tell us that we had to get in line on October 1st, like everybody else with our little uh, application for the next year. I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm bidding on events like five years from now. Yeah. Right. And he goes, well, it's oh, absolutely. And I'm like, well, if that's the policy. And at the time the mayor was John Hickenlooper, right. Yeah. Who, who's now yeah. a rep who ran for president. Right. And, and he was one of our founders when he was just a, a restaurateur, you know, when he was just owning bars and restaurants and, and one of his best friends was my board chair. So I said, okay, your boss is the mayor. He was one of our founders and our mission is to drive overnight stays. And I can't do it within a 12 month window on your rules. So do you want to go tell the mayor that you're getting in my way or do you want me to tell him? And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, let's get a solution, you know? And so what, he, what was really interesting, he came up with it, the parks director uh, at the time. He, uh, he said, hey, I get all these requests for a new marathon, for some softball tournament, for all the, and I don't know these event owners. I don't know if they're legit or not. And then if the thing doesn't make, the part's been booked and I displaced a little league team and a league or something. And now the parents light my phone up and they're all mad because the facility's empty and their kids didn't get to play. And he goes, if you, the sports commission can vet these, these requests, I'll give you access to the calendar more than a year out. I can make the case that that's a, that's a trade. And so, yeah, they, all the requests started coming to us. And one of my guy, my event guy would vet the ones we didn't know and say, hey, don't, don't, sir, don't give them that, you know, don't give them this facility for that because we don't know if they're legitimate or not, you know, type of thing. One, and then let us in. But one of the problems we ran into a lot in Jacksonville was we would have four events in the sports complex at the same time, but they were in four completely different venues and nobody was talking to each other. Uh -huh. So then it ends up on my desk where, Hey, Joel, how did, how did y'all who signed off on all these events and the permits? So um, we started a monthly meeting and 
it's I've got fire rescue. I've got F dot. I've got everybody in the room that's got a say in the permit process at some point. And once a month, okay, where are our problems? Where are we at? Why do we have three events on a day? Oh, and by the way, the Jaguars have two events in the stadium that day. And just, it's, it's a constant juggle. And that's, that's, and I, and I go back to the, our building, we, you know, we've got an arena, a performing arts hall, uh, a restaurant, a music hall, um, and then 130,000 square feet plus of convention center space, all connected under one roof. And so it's just, you know, we have to be intentional a little bit too on what are we scheduling and what are we trying to work into the schedule? That monthly meeting was a great idea. We, we had an issue just like that in a, in a literally a tier three city we work with where their convention center, they have a, it's a pretty cool building, but they put down a sheet of ice for part of the year. Mm-hmm. But that's that the, the um, school district books that not the convention center folks when it's down because the schools are using it all the time. And so what mm-hmm. ended up happening is the CVB in the building went out and booked a really cool event for the other part of the building. And then the school district booked a hockey tournament at the same time without telling anybody. So in this market, it doesn't have enough hotel rooms to have two events like that. And so the ho- the hotel rates skyrocketed. And so then the parents are calling the city going, hey, how come my hotel room's 300 bucks a night in this tier three city? And it's because they had they they did it to themselves, you know? But yeah. now, they, now they have a monthly meeting and they're saying, hey, let's look at calendars. Plus we have volunteers and police coverage and all the stuff you're talking about that they don't have enough staff to cover all those events to Shree's point. So that price of poker goes up too. Right. So good thing is now they've got an advisory board with all the right players and they're talking to each other on a regular basis. So it's good. Go ahead. (laughs) Sorry, Joel. Um, You know, kind of speaking of that processes in the last year we've implemented, we do what's called business review and it's us um, visit Spokane. So our DMO, and then our main um, public facilities that own operate like the arena, the convention center and the podium. And so anytime, so it's every Thursday and anytime that we're bringing new business to the city, we all hop on a call and we do a blueprint of the event. And then we have booking parameters that dictate like who and how the order of events are determined of like, okay, if it's, you know, are we bidding you know, gymnastics over a, you know, fishing conference or something like that and kind of determine the room nights and look at the overall um, economic impact. And um, so it's been really helpful for us to come together as a city and really do kind of that business review um, because we are booking, you know, like I, I think we're booking out obviously with the NCAA bids coming up all the way out to 2028. So that stretch of window is so um, crucial to know what's available, what's not hotel capacity. And I think that's been really crucial to us moving forward to be able to work together as a city. So a, we're not booking, you know, uh, double booking our hotels or trying to bring events on top of each other that just don't work. So I think that's been a really great partnership that we've developed here in the last year. And um, it seems to be working really well. So we've talked a lot about cost going up. John, are you seeing, uh, where are you seeing from the revenue side? How are some, or, or is there some new tricks that 
custom destinations are using to drive revenues back to support events? Or are you seeing more uh, sports tourism marketing groups having to dive into the sponsorship bucket, the sponsorship business? Yeah, I mean, unless you're a standalone sports commission like Ben and Cherise are, you know, it's it's hard to get in that entrepreneurial sponsorship. You know, when you when you get bed tax or you're in a city structure, right? And mm-hmm. that's really like when I came here to Phoenix and took over the Maricopa County Sports Commission, that's what it's called at the time. Nobody could give us money. We were a government agency, right? So there was really no way for us to to do that kind of thing. But then when we separated out of that and became nonprofit, then we could get community leaders to come to the table and and do that kind of stuff. The, the biggest thing we're seeing, and it's mostly facility driven, but but marketing too is is the improvement districts are becoming very common and getting, you know, state level legislation, you know, John Lambeth at the Civitas, one of the smartest guys I've ever met, you know, getting his crew in there to get you the state enabling legislation to then let the local municipalities take a swing at that stuff, no pun intended. Um, you know, in the case of like Norman, you know, they use half their money for marketing and half for facility development, very intentional. Um, we're seeing a lot of that. They just became legal in Illinois, which is a very challenging state to for, honestly for us to operate in just because the way they're set up, we're doing like three projects there right now. And they're all challenging because parks are separately incorporated in Illinois. So they like, they're not part of the city structure or county structure like we're used to in every other state. So they're like operating their own kind of world hmm. and they don't report to the governor or the mayor or whatever the municipality leader is. Um, they have a, a parks board of their own. It's so it's very interesting, but um, getting to figure out how to overlay a, an improvement district, even in Illinois, is kind of challenging. Um, but it's new, so we'll see. Uh, some destinations have state legislation that won't allow for them, like Wisconsin, and nobody really wants to stick their neck out to go try and get it in place because it's pretty political. Um, but we're seeing a lot of destinations go to that. Usually a two percent assessment. Got to get the hoteliers to sign off, right? And then you take that money, but it's got to be for something really specific. The cool thing about improvement districts, and I learned all this from John Lambert, so I'm stealing it from him. But the cool thing about improvement districts is that if if the political winds blow some other direction, you know, an elected official or a a city council or whatever, they can't dip their hand in the cookie jar. That money has to be used exactly for what the legislation says it's to be used for. So like in the case of Norman, it's to be used for, I mentioned earlier, you know, marketing, to go buy business and and market the destination in the sports market and to build facilities. That's what it's there for. And you, you they can't come and take it and go, you know, let's improve our convention center with it, you know, or whatever. It's not in the, if it's not listed in the legislation that created the district, uh, they can't come get the money. And any elected official can't come grab it like they can your bed tax money if they want. Almost every jurisdiction, right. they can just, they can just say, hey, I'm taking some of that, you know? And, and so the improvement districts have become a very valuable tool to, to those we've seen that have that have got it in place and, have, and are using it. So, and I think a lot of times if you can use it for event operations and that stuff, if it's written that way, that deals with Sharice and your question about the rising costs, you know, so it's, it's beyond the bed tax collection part. Um, now there are some challenges that we've seen in a few destinations, I won't name, where the improvement district got put in place and then the electeds in that particular situation said, well, now that you're getting that extra 2%, I'm going to put my hand in this other cookie jar and I'm going to take some of your bed tax money and use it for something else. Right. So it, it ends up a zero sum game type of thing, right. which, which that honestly, that shouldn't be going on. And those elected officials shouldn't be doing that. They know it, but 
if they can if they can figure out where to find money somewhere under somebody else's seat cushions, they're they're going to try and take a swing at it, right? But improvement districts falling into that, like we we're talking about earlier, that intentional investment in facilities, it's very common, very common. Cherie, you guys own how many of the events at the podium do you guys own, and how many of them are events that you guys bring in? Ooh, let's see. I think we have, well, we started out with partnerships and then um, we now own them outright. Uh, we hired a business development uh, gal this year, which has been instrumental in getting sponsors to help offset the ones that we do own. So I think right now, I think we own probably close to 10 um, indoor track meets. Um, and then three of them are conference, hang on, GNAC. And PSF and Big Sky. So we have three conference championships this year. So we'd look to probably do the same with cross country as well. And it's amazing the growth. Like I said, high school is your bread and butter. Who would have ever thunk? It's a beast to be able to seed um, versus like collegiate. Um, just because collegiate, you have coaches and teams that you know you're you're entering entering all at once. Whereas like high school, it's um, you know, you have the unofficial ones with, you know, that are just unattached versus, you know, your clubs, but none of it is, you know, um, associated with like your high school or anything like that. So it's just a different, little bit of a different of a beast, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a game changer for us to own and operate our own events. And in some ways it's been easier because you're not having to be told by, you know, a, a governing body of, you know, how to run it when you know your facility the best. So, um, you know, it's been one of those, like I said, it's, it's changed and evolved kind of even how we are as like a destination and an organization. We were, Joel and I were talking about this before we got, got on today about my time in Denver. We owned our own college football game on Labor Day Saturday. And we did that very intentionally. We did not want to be in the bowl business. And there was another group that wanted to start the mile high bowl, but we said the cost of doing business that way versus partnering with the universities to come to town, play at Mile High Stadium. And then this, my team marketed the game. And so then we revenue shared all the sponsorships that we sold with the schools and they made more money playing at Mile High than they would on their campus sites. And so it was win, win, win all the way around for everybody. And playing it on Labor Day Saturday versus like week three, when one of the schools may not be really competitive, nobody knows on the opening weekend who's any good. Right. And so, you know, catching that lightning in a bottle is kind of like the state championship game was the first game of the year, you know, between mm -hmm. Colorado, Colorado State and everybody cared, you know. And and so, you know, being really smart about event creation, I can tell you our Monday morning huddle up newsletter that we write have been writing now for 11 and a half years. The most widely distributed and and click through and opened one that we've ever written was about the Richmond sports backers and how they started out on the on the pathway of creating events. Mm -hmm. really a case study on John Lugbill. I interviewed, interviewed him for an hour. And usually once a year, I republish that one because everybody's asking about creative events. And, and what was great about John's mentality, they inherited on accident, they inherited a marathon. And they said, well, if we're going to run events, why don't we just let's get out of the bid game altogether. And so they very rarely bid on anything. And it's usually probably an A-10 championship if somebody in the community that, you know, VCU's AD wants to bid on it. Other than that, they leave all that to Jareen and Richmond Region Tourism and they stay out of it, right? But their created events are have grown so much. And, and the, the biggest takeaway I remember from doing that case study was that they decided they're going to create, they went out and raised money with the vision of creating two new events every year. And wow. they knew that one of them wasn't going to make it. 
And I said, failure is okay. Like a 50% fail rate. He goes, it's just the nature of the beast. We're going to start events that are not going to make it to year three because maybe it's the wrong event. Now, the first 10 years of that, they actually had a couple of years where they hit multiple home runs with both events. And so then year over year, they look back and they're like, hey, we own 20 something events, right? And the biggest challenge of the last time I talked to him and revisited that conversation, he said, the biggest challenge now is we have to run more events to get the same level of, of, of entries that we had five and six, seven years ago. So, so we still have the same number of entries, but I have to put more staff capital, as you mentioned earlier, Shereen, more, more human capital and expense behind these added events just to keep our registration levels, which funds our organization at the, at the same level it was years ago, because the participation rates in a lot of the endurance sports and the stuff they do on the, on the James River and all that have come down a little bit. And so I'd, I'd like to revisit that with him actually and see where he stands today, but it that was a couple of years ago. But their their story is on the creative events is is extraordinary. I mean, the yeah, fact we've... literally got out of the bid game altogether is just it's not what a sports commission usually would do, right? Exactly. We've certainly used them as kind of the mecca of like, okay, how like where do we want to play them? Kansas City. There's few cities that are doing it really well, um, and we've certainly used those kind of as like, okay, what's our guiding star? How do we want to, you know, execute that moving forward? And what it has done is, um, you know, we went from a staff of five to a, a staff of 10 because of that event execution, you have to have the staff to be able to execute it, which is good. Um, so especially as we grow on, you know, the running community in that aspect to be able to continue with kind of that same staff, same infrastructure certainly makes sense. Or John, yeah, are I there, sorry. I was going to say, are there any uh, studies being done on the shift of that you're aware of shift of sports commissions, CVBs bringing events in house and, and what do you, what's the long-term effect of that? I mean, is that going to potentially crush some NGBs, crush some different event owners? Yeah. Interesting. I don't know that anybody's done a dedicated study on that. What I can tell you is, is probably three, four five years ago, the, and, and two of you are standalone sports commissions, right? And so you would you would not be part of this, but the even in Denver, right? So Matthew Payne, who has my old job in Denver, is now part of the bureau, and we weren't, right? And so we saw a big, you know, uh, a big movement of the standalones getting pulled in, usually for financial reasons, because the bureau has bed tax. The standalones got to go rate. You guys got to go raise all your own money, right? Um, I think Ben, you get some bed tax money. You do too, Cherie, a little bit and some yep. carnival tax money, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't hard. have that, if you don't have that, it's really hard to survive if you don't have a dedicated funding source, right? And so going into the Bureau where there are dedicated funding sources usually is the solution. And But I will tell you, last year alone, we helped launch three brand new standalone sports commissions and, and helping them with their bylaws, with their articles of incorporation, with the IRS, the whole nine yards, strategic plan. What are we gonna do to fund facility development? And are we gonna own our own events? You know, those types of things. And I think it's pretty cool because I'm a I'm I'm wired that way. I'm a standalone sports commission guy. I'd rather be I'd rather be in that model. Dedicated funding source would be helpful. I never had one of those. Um, I but I'd rather not be in the bureau for the for the reasons of being able to pivot and do things like the football game and stuff that a, a CVB typically wouldn't do. Um, you know, investing in facilities, owning your own events, servicing those events at a high level. We all know servicing sports is different than servicing a convention or a meeting, right? Or a leisure traveler. So like, I like to be able to to move and pivot and work with the board 
to when I was on your guy's side of the fence, you know, to be able to do those things. And most of the time, unless the bureau president is really, is really wired that way, like the sports people have their hands tied a lot of times and they can't do some of the things that the destination should be doing, honestly. Um, so I, I like it. I like your guys set up the way you, at least the two of you have it. I don't know about Joel's, Joel's set up because Joel, you're tied to the city, right? It we're quasi it, it's 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 a thing of beauty. We're quasi-governmental. Hmm. We're not, we're not we have a dedicated funding source from the city, but we are not part of the city, if you will. We have a separate uh -huh. board that we report to. Um, and the okay. sports commission has the same thing. They have a funding source, um, and they get uh, our sports commission here in town does that. Um, the the one lesson I uh, I learned working in city government uh, in Jacksonville was uh, one of our uh, our uh, chief administrative officer. He's like, if you have a dedicated source of revenue in city government, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> and 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 I was like, got it. All right. Let, let's hey how can we figure some things out how can we where are our sources of revenue and then how can we use those strategically to go accomplish whatever mission we wanted how about to... another trend we're seeing too and i'll ask you you guys where you stand on this the the skill set to put on a, a track meet or a baseball tournament or a soccer tournament or whatever is not that much different than putting on a festival right so a lot of our destinations are now putting special events under sports so it's sports and special events. Are you guys dabbling in the music festival, beer festival, like that kind of stuff too, or no? I'll start. I'll start because I know because I, I want I want I want Ben to expound on the festival that you guys own, Ben, because that that's the, we're we're going to launch our first music festival in like fifteen years uh, later this year. But we've got a separate company coming in to do everything soup to nuts on that. Mm -hmm. We're more of a support mechanism. But Ben, you guys, you guys own, you own your own like festival, correct? Yeah. So we have uh, what's called Rides and Vibes. This was a um, group actually out of Arizona that uh, had been doing the event in in town. And as we were getting the sports commission started, long story short, they they obviously hit the brick wall with COVID, and so kind of said, "Hey, twenty twenty one." Uh, 2020 not happening 2021 not happening which again we actually launched events in mesa county in 2021 in march because again really conservative area we had some pretty good guidelines in place from from distancing and a small community so it was kind of a doable thing but then they ultimately said hey we're still not in position to come back in 2022 we said we brought that event in-house and so it's a two-day mountain bike um, race from from downtown it goes out to our trail system and then um, in conjunction with that we have music festival for the better part of like 10 hours both days um, the riders we got uh, like we're shooting for about a thousand riders total but then the music festival 25,000 plus people coming through downtown main street uh, we do this I mean, honestly it's a partnership driven thing we work with our local downtown group we work with um, some other uh, event organizers in the area, but we certainly have taken lead on this, but I, I'm laughing, John, because as you brought that question up, that is absolutely what I've been, I would say, harping on my board about is, I mean, look at what Happy Valley Sports and Entertainment Authority, there's a number of new destinations that are leading with sports and events, not just sports. And mm -hmm. I I think that's such a great model because again, we got a DMO, we got the sports side, but there, what about 
air shows? What about the motorcycle? What about all these things in the gray area festivals? Who's doing that? And do you run the risk of losing those if, if no one takes lead? So Happy Valley is one of the three that I mentioned I was mentioning from last year. Yep. Yeah. Would you have done not taken over those things if and I don't know, I don't remember the timing. You've been there several years now, but would you have done that if you didn't have such an event background that you have? I think it'd be really hard. And again, I'm not not trying to do my horn by any means, but I think, yeah, it, there's a lot of logistics. Like that first year was a nightmare for me just to try to get that to the finish line of, I mean, it was a basically a one person team with a couple contractors. It was a heavy lift. Um, and I, I tried to explain to my board, not honestly for the raise side of it, I guess, but also just like, hey, there's there's some elements of event organization that carry over. Yeah, I might not have the the biggest knowledge of booking musical talent but staging spacing porta potties i mean all that stuff you're right it, there's a lot of similarities of guess what i don't care what the old in the field product is we know what needs to go into the surrounding areas to make sure the run the event runs smoothly tree what do you guys do on special events or nothing at all uh pipe dream <laughs> we've talked and kicked around the idea of like a wellness festival um i think similar to like what richmond kind of does where you know you almost do some yoga in there you get like a viori or athleta to come in and sponsor that get some music going and you do like a you know 5k with it um we're just not there our permitting you know i think we run into some cost issues with you know the road closures and some of those so i think as we evolve especially with our cross-country course um and the expansion we just put in a brand new stadium that is right next to the podium so we've talked about okay can we shut that down and you know how do we put food trucks there um but as far as the music side our public facilities district has done a phenomenal job of integrating like that music side of things as far as bringing in um good entertainment and booking those within the venues but we're just not quite there as an organization to take that next step of how do we tie it together? I think that's probably maybe one of those next evolutions for us. But for right now, I think we are focusing a lot on the facility side of things. Like I said, we just got the podium built, a stadium just opened up here this fall. We have cross country in the works, uh, looking at redoing some of our outdoor tracks. So I think our focus is a little bit driven uh, in a different direction, but not to say that it hasn't been brought up. It's just a matter of like the timing and the execution of it. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Um, we're, we, this has gone by a lot faster than I thought it would. Um, <laughs> John, is there anything else that you're seeing that should be shared to the to the to the free world at this point hmm. that's a that's a big question <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah well i mean there's a lot of things going on in this world right now but i will say i i do <clears throat> one of the sessions that we do is on best and worst practices um and the the worst practice one the cameras go up in the air when i put the slide up with like five or six things. And, and one of them really deals a lot with, is a lot around the music festival industry is, is transparency of, of what the PL looks like and, and, or in, in giving out grant funds, you know, what process are you following? Is there a scorecard? Is there a committee or is, are you in your office by yourself? And then all of a sudden the white smoke comes up, you know? So, and we always tell people we're like, put a process in place 
in, if nothing else to cover yourself, because we've had, you know, you can Google and I joke, I'm not joking, but you can Google fired CVV president. And it's always about process and money every time. And, and I, and, and I, I would, I would wager that half of them are tied to a music festival. A lot of them are, a lot of them are, you know, and, and where the money's going and being, again, being transparent about that. Um, if there's a music promoter involved, how much budget have they been given? Who are the vendors are they using? Do they have familial ties to people in the, in our building, which has happened, right? And gotten people fired over it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just, and especially with the elected officials, because they don't like to, you know, be shown up in the media. Because if those are the ones that they're reporting to, you know, being the tourism bureau, uh, they don't, you don't want to show those people up in a, in a negative way and put them in a bad position because they're going to come for your head and, and quickly. Right. And so, but a lot of times it does have a music festival or, or some type of special event tied to it um, that, that things can get out of control. And if you don't share that, so we tell everybody we're like, and you know, Eau Claire, Wisconsin has the best scorecard we've seen. And actually they're, they're updating it right now, which is pretty cool. They're making it even better. But with their permission, I shared it this morning with a small destination in Virginia. Like you use the scorecard that fits our mission, you know, customize it to say, hey, if, if you if TV is important and ESPN is important, then you should get bonus points on the for the request for funding for events that are on ESPN. Right. And and you mentioned earlier, Sheree, um, shoulder season and off peak. Right. If we're going to fill hotel rooms in those times of need that the star report says our hotels need the help then yes, by all means, that request should be given priority, right? But you have to document it. And in Eau Claire's case, they actually have a whole committee and I've sat in those rooms when they go through them. And they say, here are the requests we have. Some of them are staff driven, our bid fee money. Some of them are the local soccer club trying to get a tournament up and launched, right? But we have to document who's involved, why we made the decision we made it, why we gave them the money and, they, and then make sure that they follow up on their end too. We see a lot you know, you gave me a broad question, so I'm gonna give you a broad answer, Joel. No, 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 absolutely. We see a lot of events you're talking about, your your guys, you know, ongoing meetings. We go to a lot of places where they don't have a post-con meeting at all. The event is over and that's it, on to the next thing. And I'm like, whoa, time out. Like that event owner took money for whatever their focus was and they owe us an after action report with the, you shouldn't be calling the hotels chasing pickup reports. They should be furnishing that to you. They should be giving you zip codes. They should be giving you their version of an economic impact report, even though you guys will run your own through DI or ARP tool or whatever else back of the napkin thing you have in place. But no, we don't just get to walk away. It's not over at that point, right? And, and we have some destinations that when they do the grants or they do funding, they give them all the money up front and hope something good happens. Yeah. And like that is a great way to get that's, an official to come at you. Right? That's how you get fired. That's exactly right. So no, give them 50% on the front end, 50% after they give you the after action report. And one destination we work with, I don't know if I mentioned it last year when we did this, one of them has a clawback clause that says, if you don't do the after action report, I can come after you for the first part of that money. Hmm. And they haven't had to use it, but there's so, that's, there's so much teeth in there that they, the right, the event owner's Dog on it. I'm going to fill out the form and send you the information. How many athletes, where they came from, things like that. And I'd say the other thing um, that we're getting heavy into, uh, especially with Kevin on our team, who's relatively new to the industry, um, he, he is a data, he is awesome. And so we are leaning not only more on the data, but he's creating tools for us. Like now that we do economic, when we do economic impact analysis on a an event or a potential facility, 
Um, we're doing it with a lot more uh, backbone to it. It's not as simple as just taking your ADR report or your star report and plug it in a hotel number for the whole year. We're not, do we're doing it by week, by month where that event falls. So being much more customized and even to the point where this is really cool. We had an event owner, you guys all know, came to us and said, Hey, we're going to add four more events to our series. So could you take the, the zip codes uh, we could never do this without Kevin. I could never do this. So can you take the zip codes from where all of our members are and where our current events are and then overlay the venue types from your scout platform, your sports tourism index platform into that would fit. And can you then make a recommendation to us based on where our athletes are and where our current events are, where is there a good sports commissioner CVB that can help and has the right venue that can then support one of these four new events? Like where are the gaps? So mm -hmm. Kevin literally built, he, he's, he's got a little programming background. He built a, a, an algorithm to overlay all those in like a heat map format. And we literally oh, got awesome. them and said, you need to put one event there, one event there, one event there. And oh, by the way, let us introduce you to Joel, Ben and Sherry to about creating a new event in their backyard because they can help you with volunteers and grant funding and these other things that maybe these other places where there are holes can't. It's super cool. I mean, just I, so I am now a data junkie. I'm a geek. I love it. Um, and, you know, three, four five years ago, like even when we did our work in Grand Junction before Ben's time, you know, it was like, well, this is what we think you should do. We had no data behind any of it. It was just best practices and myself and Gary Alexander thinking, I think this is the best play. Created events, board structure, fundraising. But now we have numbers to back us up and we actually lean on the numbers to point us in the right direction at the beginning. And it's not just a gray haired guy from Arizona telling you what I think you should do anymore. It's got a lot more to it and it, it's super cool. So I think that's that's a long answer to a short question, but data use, um, scorecard use, process, like the stuff, a lot of, the, you just can't believe how many destinations we go in and none of that exists. And you're like, man, now we got our work cut out for us because we got to help you build this whole thing from scratch. Three, do you, and Ben, for you guys, do y'all go back and look at your star reports and be like, Hey, this, let's go find this something this weekend. These are the holes in our schedule or, Hey, these are the peak dates. Hey, we got to stay the heck out of those. I think our big part is like when we do business review. So when we work with our DMO, that's a big part of filling those gaps. So obviously we try and hit the non-conference side of things because um, there is, you know, the spring and the fall are pretty heavy for conferences. So obviously we knew there was a need for our winter months um, looking at that star report. So that's certainly how that the brainchild of the podium came out of like, okay, how do we build this? What does it make sense? What does it look like? Um, kind of same thing, piggybacking off of, you know, the podium. It's like, okay, well, what's the next evolution of it? Well, we're a running community. We have Bloomsday. So how do we evolve from that? And looking at that and it's like, okay, cross country, low hanging fruit infrastructure isn't astronomical. You know, we're not looking at a $60 million build to build out a cross country course. So feasibility and cost was certainly um, a consideration into that, but also, you know, what is that shoulder season? So not necessarily, we don't come through it, you know, week by week, but we certainly know, you know, where the opportunities lie just from historical data of hosting events and kind of the, uh, you know, what does that, um, what are the, you know, what does the conferences look like? And 
we obviously know, like I said, it's, you know, fall and spring. So where can we backfill into those need times? And then summer for us is leisure travel. So I think we kind of, you know, we've been around enough to understand our market and where to kind of backfill those holes. Same reason Virginia yeah. Beach out there is indoor track fit a time of need and their hoteliers really needed it. There were, you could, mm -hmm. if you've ever been to Virginia Beach in the wintertime after Labor Day, you might as well just close up shop. And that's what they were doing, you know, and, and once their whole NHL aspirations went away, they said, okay, what's the, what's the next best use that helps those people out? And it all pointed at indoor track because of that season, that October to like February, March season matched up perfect. And now the hotels are happy. The restaurants stay open now. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it totally changed the trajectory of, of that time of year based on the facilities. Totally smart. Yeah, I'd say yeah. we're we're in a unique spot because we're such a small destination. We've got a very limited number of hotels. I would say even lower than we should for a small destination. And so we know, I mean, A, we've got a really strong relationship with the hotels. So we know exactly um, when the times are to fill. So I, I wouldn't say, I mean, I guess, yes, it's data-driven, but it's also partly just we have some events that, take up a lot of our resources so we know we can't overlap with them so we know again um the traditional tourism with uh great weather out here spring and fall um we know times that are really slow in the, in the middle of summer and so yeah we are focused on some of those weekends but again it's we run at such a high occupancy rate that we know we have limited weekends where a big event can actually fall which kind of a nice problem to have but also it's a lot of lost revenue that that we're trying to offset figure out all right well that will wrap it up john boy this this hour flew by <laughs> um you know uh thanks for coming on um we've lost sheree um not the first time we've lost her but um <laughs> Uh, but John, really appreciate you coming on. Um, great to have you on again, as always. Uh, very insightful, and uh, it's great to get your viewpoint as you're working with a hundred different destinations around the country, and uh, kind of get that viewpoint of a from a global standpoint. And so. John, we we really appreciate you coming on. Second time guest, you get a special award. It'll probably come in a liquid format at the next conference. That's uh, awesome. We'll, we'll make sure we'll make sure we got that for you. Well, my goal is some... not to get fired. You didn't fire me, so appreciate you all. <laughs> Trust me, that's all of us every time we do this. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> good thing is I know my boss, so as long as uh, you know I keep yes. him in good shape, you know he can't let me go. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Appreciate exactly. you all giving me a taste of your side of the industry, too. It's always great to touch base with you all. You guys are the front line of what we do, and and uh, anytime I can you know, take some time and break bread with you guys is awesome. So thanks, thanks for letting me on. Okay, Absolutely. Three, Ben, anything else for the good of the order today? No, excited for a new year. Excited to connect with some of you guys. Uh, headed to Sports ETA Chief Executive Summit um, in, in February. So excited to see some leaders from the industry there. Um, missing our, our girl, Cassie Poss, this week, but uh, I know she'll be back with us soon. So um, give a little shout out and love to Fort Worth. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you guys in person not too far away. As I say, it's right down the road. Uh, before long, we'll be back out on the road doing uh, meetings and everything. Uh, great to see everybody. Uh, we'll we'll keep doing the smaller episodes. Our next big episode will be with Ryan Tressel in February, and we will be talking about what happens now that you've clicked submit. <laughs>
<laughs> and let me tell you, I can't wait to click submit about 50 times next week. Oh my gosh. There you go. Uh, I don't know if I'm, if y'all are in the same boat, but I'm about blinded by uh, filling that stuff out at this point. God love you guys. Better you than me. <laughs> oh man. Budget, it's, that's, that's a special thing. That <laughs> budget thing. Holy mackerel. Fantastic. Ryan Forrest and uh, Ben, we'll see you in San Jose, if not before. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll we'll talk to you again next time.